Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Teach Me to Talk with Laura and Kate. I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech-language pathologist. And I'm Kate Hensler, developmental interventionist. How are you tonight, Laura? I am great. How are you? Doing well. Had a nice Father's Day. That's good. We did, too. We're working ourselves silly, but we still had a really nice day. Well, good. Hopefully you had some child support there to help on Father's Day. Lots of child support. Lots oh, of, uh, that sounds funny, child support. Yeah. Uh, I've, no, I've never had it. Well, I don't even know what to say about that. Lots of assistance from our children, yes. That was fun. Good. They are there and painting and um, working and like everything else we do, we're a big part of that, so... We had a nice day with that. How about the Henslers? We had a pretty low-energy day. And then we went to Bill's place of uh, preference for dinner, which was very exciting, the IHOP. So <laughs> <laughs> We've been to Waffle House and Cracker Barrel today, so there you go. Oh, I guess that's the, the comfort food coming out of the dad. That's really what Bill wanted. So we went to IHOP. And he got a nap Aww. today, and he took a nap yesterday, so he was very happy about his nap status. So, that was <laughs> Well, good. there you go. That is great. Well, I'm glad you've had a relaxing weekend. It's been rainy here on and off for today, so. It has been a good nap Yesterday, day. too. Yeah, it was. Yeah. It was. I wish I could have gotten that, but oh, well, that will come in time. Yes. Yeah. All right, before we get going tonight, I want to, let's see, any announcements? I always try to talk about what's on the Facebook page. I've been posting lots of things on the Facebook page about booking an appointment with my new office that's opening the last week in June, and I would absolutely love to meet anyone who wants to bring your toddler in for me to work with you with your child. And, again, the main purpose of that is making sure that you go home with a great home program so that you are absolutely sure of the things that you should be doing in play and in daily routines to support your child's receptive and expressive language development. So I just want to get that in there again because I'd love to get to meet anyone. And so far, everyone that's booked has been a faithful podcast listener. So there you go. I wanted to um, be sure to say that as well. One more exciting thing is I've I've gotten this week a couple of reviews from uh, both women are speech pathologists with the, my new book that came out in May, Building Verbal Imitation in Toddlers. One of those posted on the Facebook page, but one did not, so I'm not sure what's up with that, and I'll get that other one posted. But um, Lizzie from Utah wrote me an, a nice little note about it, and then Ann from, and I believe Ann is from Pennsylvania, but I might be wrong about that, and I've emailed Ann before. And she wrote on the Facebook page that she really likes the new book because looking at where, figuring out which of those levels or stages a child is in has been so helpful for her, and she's gone from feeling like she's shooting in the dark when she's working on expressive language because so many times we go straight to words without looking at all those prior steps. And she said it's been nice to help her to recognize and remind parents of just how much progress the child is making when before she might not have, it sounds like she might not have been giving the child credit for the progress he's making vocally and expressively without breaking it down in those little bitty baby steps. So I was excited to hear that um, feedback, and I wanted to be sure to pass that along. It's I think it's been a, a great tool for therapists and parents, and that was the purpose. And I so feel the I same way, Laura, about looking at kids and feeling like, before I kind of felt like, oh, yeah, I had some vague idea that they were getting better or that sessions were somehow easier from my perspective, but now right. it's easier to kind of quantify and say exactly how it's improving Right. And also kind of gives you a heads up or a positive feeling about, well, how close could we be to words here? You know, right. like, let's right. look at all these things he or she is doing or isn't doing, and you really kind of have a better way to predict, you know, what the immediate future may look like. Right. And sometimes you'll have a kid that 
instantaneously imitates words for you in the first session when he hasn't done it for mom and dad before. And that's a surprise and a gift whenever that happens. <laughs> because yeah, but usually don't expect it. <laughs> yeah, there's more of a, a sequence there. And the best part about it, I think, is being able to tell parents, look, this is where she is. So these are the 10 or 15 little things you could do at home this week. I want you to, you know, include these kinds of words, or I want you to model these actions or model these gestures. These, This is your homework. And I think it gets everybody on the same page. So I really liked it. I'm even using it with my clients, even though I've used it before, just to have the handouts there to me. I look at it and go, oh, that was such a good idea. I wish I'd written this book a long time ago. <laughs> because having it there as a tool and being able to give someone that handout and say, this is what I want you to do this week, and circle it real big, and if you have to, walk in and stick it on their refrigerator so they remember what you're working on. Because it is frustrating when you're working with a kid and you're giving them lots of pro- – you you know, session after session is getting a little bit better, but they're still not at words yet, and then mom still kind of feels she might, she might even be working on the wrong thing or she still might say something like, well, he's still not really talking yet, you know, and you want to – be able to say, well, let's talk about what you can do at home this week to really work toward that. And we're kind of down here on a level two or level three, and words are way up at seven. Look how many things we have to get through before we're going to hear a lot of words. And so I, I, I think it's a nice tool. And, again, I'm using it with my clients too. So I like it as well and wanted just to pass that praise, being the praise junkie I am, wanted to pass that along and mention that today as well, too. All right, anything else before we get going with today's topic? Um, I'm guessing you didn't forward it to me, and I know you've been terribly busy with your place. You probably didn't do therapy tip of the week this week. No, we didn't. We did not do therapy tip of the week. And I'm hoping, you know, actually looking at my to-do list for this week, that therapy tip of the week may not resurface this week either. may not resurface until you get your place totally done and you have a great place to film it in, huh? And that will be therapy tip of the week. Yeah, that week will be, look, here it is. Yeah. Yeah, that's we certainly have our portion of the new office set up as our video studio, and that's been so exciting for the both of us. And I just walk past that equipment and see those cameras and those lights, and I think, oh, this is going to be so awesome. But uh, we haven't quite gotten there yet. We have other things that are a little higher on the priority list. So hopefully Therapy Tip of the Week will um, we'll get going on that. Maybe not this week, maybe the end of next week. But thanks for asking. That was nice. Well, I have another question. But this Go is ahead. Kind of, this, this is an impromptu question. You like to, to send me you know, dinners on me. live. <laughs> yeah, this isn't a hard one. I just, uh, seriously, I had a situation this week where the mom was asking me, and I was kind of saying, well, I think this and I think that, but you know what? I'm going to ask my go-to expert and see what she has to say. I didn't tell her I was going to ask it live, nor did I tell you, but <laughs> surprise. No, it's not a hard question at all. But here's the deal. I've been seeing this little guy for not very long, maybe five or six sessions. Uh-huh. Uh, he is, uh, in my humble opinion, though I didn't diagnose him for any of those speech therapists listening, wonder why this DI would even use this word. But he's, he appears to be quite apraxic to me. Um, so, but he has already begun to make some progress. He's, he is using signs and handful spontaneously and quite a few more imitated. He is doing some simple words. Um, but so I'm happy with how he's doing and the right. mother seems happy. But she asked me at the end of this past Thursday session, um, I just wanted to ask you, and I thought, of course, I always kind of think, uh-oh, hope I know that. Yeah, answer. here it comes. And, yeah. and I didn't necessarily know it, but and I kind of said, well, here's what I think, you know, but I'm going mm-hmm. to run this by my friend and fellow um, colleague, but mostly my go-to expert, and that would be you. So she said that ever since he started therapy, which is, again, at most maybe six weeks, um, he has really, really started to put his fingers in his mouth mm-hmm. 
and mm-hmm. he's never been a kid who really he didn't suck his thumb, he didn't take mm-hmm. his passive. Oh, by the way, he's two and a half, mm-hmm. darling little fellow. But he has begun to, and, and she kind of described what he kind of takes. She said, well, he started with one finger, and then he kind of started doing two fingers, and then he kind of got, so now he kind of has three or four fingers kind of hooked in his mouth over his bottom teeth. And she said that he does that when, uh, you know, kind of those times when kids do comfort things, whether it be a passy or sucking their thumb or snuggling with their blanket, you know, when he's watching TV, when he's sitting in the shopping cart and they're at the grocery store. Um, you know, not when he's actively engaged, but when he's kind of in shutdown mode. Lulling down, yes. Right. And that um, that's really been since he kind of started therapy, that he has started to do those things. And she was asking my opinion about that. And what did you say? I think it's because he finally knows he has a mouth. What do you I think? Th- <laughs> <laughs> I said, well... I would guess, and I and I said I really haven't seen this with other kids that appear to be a practice necessarily. Oh, but you know what? I bet it's happened, and Mom Maybe, probably hasn't and, mentioned it to you because I think it's fairly common. Do you? I really mm-hmm. see, and I said it doesn't strike me as all that bizarre, really. But I right. can't really say that I've had other moms report it. And mind you, when I'm with him, he never sticks his hands in his mouth at all. So it's not right like because he's not going to sleep or anything. Right. Yeah. I mean, he's. I'm trying mm-hmm. to get him going, not slowing him down. But, right. Um, I said yes. I suspect that it was he had more oral motor motor awareness mm-hmm. that he's kind of aware of his mouth now, mm-hmm. and that gee, he has some control over it. Right. Um, and it's and it's probably become now kind of a comfort habit thing. You know, he mm-hmm. has decided hmm, he doesn't really mind having his hands in his mouth, but initially it probably started because he did have more awareness of of his mouth and what he could do with it, and that he even had control over it. So that was That's my best ex- guess. But exactly what I would say on that. And I do think a lot of kids go back developmentally when they start when they start getting at that little phase with language, you know. And when kids first start imitating a lot of words, it's usually in that twelve to fifteen month old range. And that's usually if a kid is kind of has a tendency to be mouthy, that's the age they are, you know. And a lot of kids kind of hang on to that mouthing things past that time. But right when kids are Teething and getting in that whole, you know, again, that little developmental phase, that's something that's very um, typical for them to do. And so I think for our little friends who've never done that before, sometimes they go back and pick up a lot of stuff, and they may move through that phase fairly quickly. But I've seen that a lot. And I do always think, boy, you didn't even really realize everything that those lips and tongue and teeth or even how that felt very much, did you? Mm-hmm. Um, be- before with a lot of kids because I think that they just have so little awareness, like you said, of their purposeful control of their mouths. And mm-hmm. so they do just kind of, it's like, oh, wow, that feels kind of good there. And it is interesting that a lot of those kids also may be really picky eaters and may have other behaviors that their parents don't necessarily associate as part of one big overall issue. You know, they've just looked at it as he's a late talker and he has some feeding stuff, you know, or he's picky or whatever, and, you know, they they don't look at all that as being connected. Diane Barr is a speech pathologist. Her last name is B-A-H-R, and she's written a good book that says, oh, it's something like, think my mother never told me that or something like that. And I haven't gotten all the way through it. Honestly, I've just looked at it in bits and pieces. But she really does a good job of tying all of that information together and helping you see that whole kind of overall connection. Now, she's probably, well, not probably, but well, I probably should reserve judgment until I've read the whole darn thing. But just knowing what she says and is, and she's a real oral motor guru, and I probably wouldn't lean that much. You know, my pendulum doesn't swing all the way over there. But for a lot of kids, looking at that more issue more holistically makes more sense, and you can kind of put more of that together. And for a lot of 
kids, you know, you'll say to a mom, does he put things in his mouth? Oh, no, he would never do that. And then, you know, like you said, a month later, she's saying, my goodness, he's starting to do that now. Why is that? (laughs) And that whole awareness piece, I think, is huge for a lot of those kids. So that's that's interesting. I'm glad. I don't think we've ever talked about that on the show before. And I've never had a mom ask me and or take note of that. And Mm -hmm. and I just kind of and I stated up front, I am not really that familiar with seeing that, but here's my best guess. Right. Um, and I'm glad my best guess was a, a reasonable one. So, but I, I did tell her I would confirm it why. with you. So, <laughs> I now I you're can right. say, guess what? I was right. <laughs> yeah, that's totally what I think it is. Now, it could be other things, you know, but um, that would be my best guess for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it just, you know, lots of children suck their thumbs and, you know, suck passies and find great comfort from those kinds of, that kind of feedback. So it's interesting that he's just now kind of discovered that. And uh, I, ha- I have had several moms ask me, their kids have started putting so many things in their mouths, do you think I ought to introduce a pacifier at, you know, 27, 28, 30 months? And I always say, no, don't do that, mm-hmm. you know, um, which I always think is kind of a funny question, but they wonder because, you know, their kid never wanted to do that before, and all of a sudden now, you know, instead of chewing their shirts or, you know, this little guy just has his fingers, some kids are mouthy with so many toys, you know, they wonder, and that I would never go that direction, but I would say if it bugs a mom, and it sounds like this little guy doesn't do it all the time, it's just when he's going to sleep, and I think that's perfectly fine for a two-year-old. But for other kids who need that input, what an OT would tell you to do is really up their um, sensory diet with oral sensory stuff, meaning you're going to brush their teeth more often. You're going to let them drink um, thicker drinks or cold drinks through a straw because that gives more feedback than just, you know, again, a normal kind of... um, especially the slotted sippy cup. Boy, those, a lot of those sippy cups, the suction you get from those, boy, you really are getting a lot of feedback from that. Other kinds of crunchy, chewy snacks, all of those things would be, would be other ways that you could help a child meet those oral sensory needs in addition to chewing toys, his clothes, his thumb, his fingers, whatever. So those are just some ideas if some moms or therapists are listening and and have a kid who's doing it so much that they feel like they should be addressing it. But your little guy, it sounds like he's just doing it to fall asleep and regularly calm. Well, she said when he, you know, if he wasn't playing, if he wasn't moving, if he was just kind of in a sedentary state. And she did kind of say he is doing it more and more. And it's kind of started with one finger, and, mm-hmm. kind of and he's getting the whole darn thing fingers. in there. Now yeah. he's kind of got four <laughs> fingers hanging out of his mouth. Yeah. Um, well, he now he may benefit then from some of those other ideas. Okay. You know, if she really starts to talk about it or mentions it more, you know, you can mention to her, let's talk about, you know, what kind of cup he uses. Let's talk about a straw cup and, you know, the benefits of using a straw versus a sippy cup. And, and he does gonna... use a straw cup. I asked yeah. that after she brought that up and, she mm-hmm. said, yes, he does, although he was way older than any of the other kids. She has four, so she has lots of mommy, and she's a real right. good hands-on mom, and she's very aware of all of them. She said, well, he does use a straw cup, but he was way older than the because other boys. Because he couldn't, boys. Do, it. Mm-hmm, couldn't yeah, do it. Yeah, his coordination was so bad. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, and so those might be some things you might really talk to her about, um, giving him crunchy, chewy snacks you know, making sure that she kind of looks at that, that his food isn't all mush, you know, that he gets some good feedback that way, um, just some other ideas for her to use with him if she feels like it starts to um, be an overwhelming need that he can't meet any other way. Okay. The, all right. The same, little, the same little guy. I'll just take two more seconds. I shared this with my family. I thought it was so cute, so I'll share it on the podcast. She was also telling me that he has a, he has picked up some words and some of the words he uses, um, you know, over and over and over because he's like so thrilled that he has words okay, that he can talk. Yeah, <laughs> one of them is whole. And she said when we get to and it's a big extended local family. And she said when we get together with my parents and my siblings and all the other kids, he drags everybody around outside looking for holes so that he can <laughs> label them. Oh, <Aww. laughs> he's so cute. Anyway, and then her other one was. 
the, the, the little boy's father is in the military, and um, last session, not this week, but the week before, the word that he was able to get pretty consistently that day was turtle, which was like, wow, I couldn't believe he yeah, got turtle. Yeah, that's kind of hard. But he did. Yeah. I know, but he got it, and, you know, he stuck with it. And so she said that the dad, the dad's out of town for, or out of the, I don't know if he's out of the country or out of the state, but he's gone for a month. And he called for a family chat, and the little boy got on the phone, and he can say hi. He said hi, and then he said turtle, and the dad said he said turtle. Oh, I know. I was like, oh, that's sweet. That is sweet. That's my little update of the week on this little guy. He's a cutie pie. I'm enjoying him. And he's really smart, isn't he, Kate? Because he's he's initiating. Yeah, Mm -hmm. he's initiating. Like, I can now do this that I couldn't do, so I'm going to figure out how to get you to notice that I'm saying some stuff. Yeah. Even his daddy, who called, you know, totally out of context. Hi, turtle. (laughs) (laughs) Like, aren't you proud of me? Look what I can do. Oh, yeah, it so sounds cute. like the dad responded beautifully. He recognized, oh, my gosh, he said turtle. <laughs> oh, that's a cute story for Father's Day. I know. I thought I'd share it. It's very appropriate Aww. for the day. So, anyway. Oh, well, thank you for sharing that. That just that makes me smile all over thinking about that. I know. I had great fun telling it at dinner the other night when Aww. it happened. I thought, not that... <laughs> Anybody in my family loves my work stories, but they humored me and acted like they thought it was cute, too. So. Well, anyone listening to this show would love a good that. story yeah. Yeah, like that, so that's great. Okay. Okay, tonight we are talking about flashcards. And uh, speech pathologists might not call them flashcards. They might have a fancier word like vocabulary building cards or something like that. And I got a question from a speech pathologist uh, a day or two ago, and she says that she's been a speech pathologist for over two years and she loves the podcast. And she says the podcast helps fill in the gaps that grad school didn't cover. And then she says she's getting ready to make an investment with four vocabulary cards, but she didn't know which ones to buy. And so she gives some information about where she works. She does some early intervention, and she works on lots and lots of language. And she's asking me which flashcard sets I like better, Super Duper or Mayor Johnson. Now, Super Duper, for those of you who are not speech pathologists, and you know Super Duper, don't you, Kate? No, honestly, I You know that company. Super Duper is a company, uh, it's like a a family company, so of course I really like them. And it's a speech pathologist, and uh, it started out as a little family business, and now it's really, really grown, and they sell tons of uh, therapy materials. And, you you know, they have they have some tests, they have some games, but mostly they have a lot of vocabulary cards and a lot of worksheets. And they have, you know, and they have their cards arranged a lot. Of, you know, it could be for speech or for language. They might have a lot of speech stuff like cards that focus on R or cards that, you know, teach K and G or, you know, just any kind of speech or language goal. Boy, they probably have a, a flashcard set for that. And so she and Mayor Johnson, they are mostly uh, they're the board maker people. Right. They did a, yeah a lot of the kind of line drawings that um, you can use, and lots of therapists have used those for years and years and years when they set up AAC equipment. You know, that's alternative augmentative communication devices, whether it be like a voice output system, like a computer that talks for a kid, or something a little more low-tech, but Mayor Johnson pictures or Boardmaker pictures, uh, people have used those for a long time, too. So she's asking about which of those sets we would recommend. And I would probably, for toddlers, and you know what my answer is going to be, and I kind of (laughs) jokingly said back to her, you haven't listened to the show very long, (laughs) or you would know that Kate and I would say, neither, because toddlers learn best by doing. But I can totally understand why lots of speech pathologists really depend on their cards. Because when we are in graduate school, 
You would think that's how the only way we can teach a kid a new word is to show them a picture of it. And I think that really started because it's easier to get a spontaneous production from a kid rather than him imitating how you would say the word. And that would be applicable whether you're looking at a language goal, like whether he can name it or whether he can understand it or whether you have a speech goal, if he's producing all of the sounds correctly. You know, the pictures came into being because you could really hear how a kid said it and not be influenced. And you would really know that he knows that he knows if he can name it or point to it or whatever. So I understand the theory behind using all the darn pictures. But for toddlers, that does not need to be our primary method of teaching. And a lot of times... Speech pathologists forget that. They don't they just don't remember that pictures aren't entirely developmentally appropriate for so many of the kids that we see in early intervention programs. Now that being said, I, but I wanted to before we start to kind of, you know, slam people who use pictures, I wanted to just really talk about kind of the history of why as a speech pathologist or a therapist, you would you would use that. There are some very valid reasons to use pictures, and goodness knows that's how we test kids as speech pathologists with the picture manual. So kids have to know it eventually, but really naming a lot of pictures, a variety of pictures, isn't on the test developmentally until a kid is almost three. Um, from your perspective, Kate, from your your master's degree is not in speech language pathology, but how with early childhood education, talk about your educational experience with pictures. Did anybody I mean, is that a big deal for developmental interventionists and therapists like it is for speech pathologists educationally in your training? I'll shut up now so you can answer the question. Well, I'm trying to think of an answer. Um I mean, certainly there is a big emphasis in early childhood education on literacy, on pre-literacy right. skills. Um, even though my master's was in interdisciplinary early childhood education and it was supposed to um, include those children who had some sort of delays, I'd say mm, that was not the primary emphasis. It was on more typically developing kids, even though in theory it was supposed to be both. Mm-hmm, right. And in that perspective, there certainly is a big emphasis on not only pictures, but <gasps> gasp, even words, even written words. And <gasps> I, yeah, I know. And my thing always was kind of like, yeah, if a kid is developmentally ready, right. it's great. You know, I mean, you can't knock. Right. Encouraging sure. kids to love books and reading and and recognizing pictures and all that, but really, so few of the kids that we work with really are there developmentally. That right, you know. I it, so I would say it was to some extent something that was um, given certainly importance in early childhood education, but not. And that as makes it a lot of sense when you relate it to literacy. Right, and I guess early that. literacy. And you know what? Mm-hmm. I, my kids loved books when they were very little. They right. loved for me to read to them. We spent a lot of time doing it, even if I didn't want to. They drove me crazy to sit and look at books and right. read to them. But um, the kids we see generally, I mean, it's very rare that I get a I'm not going to say I don't ever. I do occasionally get a child who loves books. I have found even those kids who love books, Frequently, that is not a very effective way to get them to move towards words. They may point to pictures. They may do a beautiful job pointing to pictures. And I've had those book kids who love books, and, yes, they know words. I mean, they they understand words, and they can point to pictures appropriately, sometimes even beyond where they are developmentally, chronologically. You know, they they can find the, the details in the pictures, and they can, you know, and it's very impressive. Now, does that... Does that convert into words very easily? No. And, yeah, and it doesn't I, always correlate with expressive language. Yeah. No. It, yeah, you know, but then, it's a good point, though. Receptively, if you're using pictures, 
you do need to make sure that the kid understands the picture to start with. And so receptive stuff always comes before expressive. Have you ever had a kid, and I just, I remember this sweet little girl who happened to have Down syndrome, who every time you asked her what a picture was, she would say, what's that? I mean, that was her label for every picture. What's that? What's that? Uh What's that? I mean, that's how, because that is all she ever heard when she read a book, Uh when her parents read to her. It's just them pointing and her, you know, them obviously asking, like all parents do, what's that? What's that? So darn if she didn't start to... That's how she labeled every picture. It didn't matter if she, if you were opening a photo album or if you were looking at a a you know picture book. That's what she would say because that's what she heard over and over and over. You know, but so targeting pictures with receptive language is important. And I and again, we're a little bit ahead of what I, where how I wanted to take this discussion. But it's I want to be sure that we mention it. A lot, and I love how you mentioned it there. It doesn't necessarily correlate with expressive language, but boy, is it the foundation. Because if you have a child who's looking at books and not understanding and not doing anything receptively with books, sometimes we have moms that'll say, My child loves pictures or my child loves books. But then you look at it or you watch them or mom describes what they're doing with books, and it is completely. Um, independent of anyone else. And more often than not, they're just flipping the pages to get the visual stimulation. And when you try to jump in and read with them or read to them or interact with them in any way with the book, they don't like it. They're taking the book away from you. And I've had kids that kind of hold on to flashcards this way. You know, they want to do it by themselves. And they're not usually, well, they're never learning language when they're doing it because if they're not socially interacting so that they can at least hear somebody label the word, you know, don't kid yourself. There is no language learning going on there. Usually they're just getting that little visual um, self-stimulatory um, feedback, buzz, whatever you want to call it, because they're flipping the pages so fast. And you've had kids that have done that, too, because we've talked about that a lot. Lots and lots and lots of kids. And I would guess probably more than your average speech therapist, because unless I'm playing speech therapist, as I'm apt to do, but if I'm seeing a kid as a developmental interventionist, Mm, I've had lots of those kids, and because generally there is, in theory anyway, maybe a little bit more significant delay or uh, a delay that involves right. more than just communication. And I've right. had tons of those kids. I almost and I always ask. I mean, that's as soon as I say, "Does your child show any interest in books?" Oh, yes, he loves books. Will he let you look at the book with him? Will he let you talk about the book, read the book? Usually I don't even mean read the book. I just mean right. share it in some way by pointing to mm-hmm. pictures, by talking about what they see on each page, right. by turning the pages. And so often, particularly with those kids I'm seeing as a developmental interventionist, and sometimes those that I'm playing speech therapist with, mom says, oh, no, no. It's really, he just wants to do it himself. And when and then I say, and when you try to do it with him, what happens? And nine times out of ten, he gets mad, he runs, he grabs the book. Basically, mm-hmm. he shuts it down. Right. And to me, that is not a child who really is showing any interest in in literacy or pictures right. or right. because right. they're really not using the book in a typical way at all. Exactly, and that's hard to talk to parents about because a lot of times they'll, you know, when you ask what does he like to do, that's one of the first, oh, he loves books, mm-hmm. you know, without really realizing, mm-hmm, yeah, you know, it kind of looks like that, but let's talk about how different that is from what we would want to really see and how a lot of times moms think, boy, there's a big educational value there. And I, I always say, how do you think he's learning language with that if he doesn't really let you label, if he doesn't let you talk about that, if you can't even sit beside him when he's doing it? Mm-hmm. And you can tell so many times they've never even thought about it that way before. Right. Because, And, you know, that is something that's so commonly shared, um, you know, the little sound bites on TV, at right. least here locally, and I'm sure it's a national movement to read your children, sure. read your babies. Yeah. And sure. it is great, but these are kids yeah. who really don't want to be read to. They want right. to turn the pictures, the pages in the book. Right. And, and it's usually different. the kids, 
yeah, that socially, their social interaction is what is most often off, for lack of a right. better word. Um, and those or kids, yeah, very yeah, different and, from a typically developing kid. Yeah, right. And so that's that should be a red flag for a therapist if a mom is telling you that, and it looks so different that there's no shared experience there. You know, ding, 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 ding. You need to think, ah, social interaction. Goal number one, (laughs) because he's not participating in what we would want to see. And there's no way for mom to really use that as a language or a cognitive or any kind of developmental domain, whatever you want to call it. I guess it could technically be a fine motor skill at that point if they're flipping the pages. But you've (laughs) got to explain to mom what it is and why he's doing it and how to make it better and different. And that's not to say that she won't ever... Let a kid look at books by himself. She just needs to know mm, that's not really, he's not really learning anything. He's seeing visual images, and unless you're there, he's letting you teach and lay your language on that experience. There's not really any, there's not much learning going on. So I wanted to be any sure more that we And those that. are frequently the same kids who will sit and watch episode after episode after episode of what appears to be a, at least mildly educational show. You know, they right. love they love Sesame Street. They love whatever the show might be. And parents a lot of times think, well, they're absorbing that. They're learning from that. Mm. That's a good thing for them to, and yet, mm, <laughs> I mean. Not really. Yeah, you know, what they're really getting is that same visual feedback and and stimuli that that is rewarding to them. Yeah, that they speak, and yes, they enjoy it in some way, but really are they absorbing what's being taught, quote-unquote taught on the show? No, they're not. Right, right. And so we want to be sure that we're making that distinction, too. And the reason that they're not doing that usually has to do with where they are developmentally, their sensory processing system is different. They, those are usually the kids that even though the sound is on on the TV, it's usually the picture that they're going after. And, again, it's that kind of over, they really, really, really like that visual stuff. Uh, so you have to be really, really careful with that. And really, again, what you're, I want to reiterate what you're saying there. You need to call it what it is. And if you're a therapist, talk to parents about why, you know, that is occurring and what we need to do differently to be sure that we met, you know, that a child um, engages in things that could be more beneficial and things that would, would ultimately, if we're talking about a kid with communication delays, help him learn how to talk. You know, it's not going to be by sitting and doing that because usually they're tuning out that auditory piece. So they're just getting the visual stuff. And you can tell that very easily. A lot of those kids really don't care if the volume's on. Have you noticed that if you had moms yes. who leave the TV on all night long in their room? And the, and I'll say, gosh, can you hear that? No, nope, the volume's way down. I don't even think he can hear it. You know, again, mm, let's talk about why you're doing that. Yeah. Um, so wanted to be sure to point that out. Um Pictures too for you for you to really be able to use those effectively with children. Kids have to be at that symbolic level. They have to realize that the ball on the in the picture is the same as the object that you're playing with. And again, a lot of our kids aren't there yet, and a lot of people naturally just say, "And boy, am I kind of off my little outline that I actually made for the show." Uh, A lot of people will say, I'm going to just, you know, this kid doesn't talk, so let's put, you know, 30 pictures on the refrigerator of every option of drink or food that he could want, and we're going to put it there so he's not frustrated anymore, so he can just point to the picture and show me what he wants. That never, ever works because kids are hardly there cognitively or symbolically. They don't understand that the picture of the milk is what you're going to pour in their sippy cup. And again, unless you're helping mom make that distinction and unless she knows, boy, he's not really ready for that yet because developmentally he doesn't understand that this picture represents this thing, you know, that's not going to be a good um, way, a good mode 
to use. And again, a lot of people really kind of miss that when they're um, looking at late talkers and looking at ways to help children communicate. Now, that's not to say that pictures aren't helpful for lots of kids. They are, but so many times people use them well before it's appropriate. So you have to be sure that... um, that you know what you're talking about there. Let's back up. Let's skip back up to the beginning of my outline. I should have sent you that, I guess, but I'm the one who seems to be off uh, <laughs> off the sequence here, the order. The reason ki- a lot of kids, we've talked about the kids who like books but that aren't really there developmentally, but let's talk about the kids who don't like pictures that we started kind of talking about at the beginning and the reasons that they don't like them, and again, I've touched on this a little bit, is symbolically or developmentally they're not there yet. They don't understand what the heck the picture is for. They don't get what it represents. They're not a highly visual kid anyway. So to them, it's boring. They don't like those books. They don't get why mom would want to sit there and look at that stuff. It's not appealing to them. Sometimes it's because their attention span is so limited that, again, unless you really engage them and unless you can really hook them and, you know, unless it's something that they love, they're not able to sit, you know, from looking at from a maturation standpoint. They're not able to do that kind of thing yet or even from a sensory standpoint. Their little system is on go, go, go. So for you to want them to sit there and do something that's absolutely meaningless to them, they have no interest in that. And we certainly see a lot of those kids on our caseloads, I think. Don't you? Yes. Yeah. A great deal, which is really why I use so few pictures. I mean, probably the closest I come is puzzles. um, Right. On a regular basis, and even that, usually it takes me a while to get kids comfortable and willing and even interested in doing puzzles. Now, occasionally I get a puzzle kid who loves every shape and form of puzzle, but a lot of kids don't. Right. Um, And it's because of that. It's because they're not there developmentally yet. They're not ready for that whole symbolic stuff. They don't get matching yet. They don't get any of that. So sometimes a parent or even a therapist will say he doesn't like puzzles, and I'll say, well, it's no darn wonder you know, right. he's six months developmentally. Would you give a six-month-old a puzzle and say, here, go to it? No, mm-hmm. you wouldn't. I mean, there's just, that's crazy talk. <laughs> but in therapy, don't we do that sometimes? You take a kid who is so not there yet developmentally and expect him to be able to do it. And, again, sometimes a parent or a therapist will look at it as like it's just kind of a personal choice there. And for some kids it is. I mean, my visual perceptual skills, I don't – sometimes when we're doing a puzzle, when the puzzle's upside down, I have to flip the puzzle around, even especially if the picture's not there to match it. You know, if I'm putting a form in and it's new, I'll think, well, I don't know where that goes either. Let me turn this around. I can't do it upside down. Um, So – some people just, that's not a strength, and so kids aren't going to like it. But for a lot of kids on our caseloads, it's because developmentally they're not there yet. And that's why they don't like it. And, again, a parent or a therapist might just assume it's a personality thing when it really is a developmental thing, so you have to look at it like that too. Um So let's talk about, we've talked about the reasons kids don't like it. We've talked about how important it is for a child to be able to identify pictures receptively before we would expect them to do it expressively. And let me just interject this little uh, tidbit of information, too, especially for a therapist. If you have a child who's a real labeler, and again, these would be children who probably have other markers of being um, on the spectrum, if you have a child who is so good at labeling pictures and who loves pictures and who has every leapfrog toy imaginable and who's memorized a lot of books, but you're not seeing much evidence of being able to use those words other than labeling, you need to go back and help that kid fill in the gaps receptively with real objects and real play scenarios because they, again, because of their visual preferences and that's kind of their quirk or their 
what's a better way to say that case? Splinter skill, that they've learned all those pictures, but yet you see very little evidence of them understanding much receptively. You've got to go back and fill in those gaps. And that happens a lot. And a lot of times a parent will say to me, or they'll they'll write an email, or even I'm working with a little girl right now who's, Initial email from mom said, uh, you know, she knows lots of words, meaning that she could repeat everything after the leapfrog toy, or she could echo everything her mom said as she's reading her, you know, collection of 175 books or whatever. But there is very little evidence of her, that her receptive language was actually that good. I mean, she was not following a lot of directions in daily routines, still ignoring lots of what was directed to her language-wise, not um, making, you know, good, consistent connections. And lots of her language was echolalic. But because she could talk, boy, her doctor missed her pediatrician, even on all these well checks. You know, when mom says she knows 300 words, the doctor didn't really understand that she wasn't conversational. Those were just lots and lots and lots of labels, you know, that should be a big red flag to a therapist and a mom with she's not really using the language that she has. She doesn't understand all these words that she's saying. So I want to be sure that we're interjecting that just um, for moms and therapists that might be listening. You might be saying, Laura, how can you tell me not to use pictures with this kid? Because, boy, can this kid learn a lot from pictures but she doesn't ever want to really follow through. I mean, she ignores a lot else of what I say. Again, ding, 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 you have a winner <laughs> with receptive language is where you've got to work on. And there's a big gap. And any time you have a gap that a kid under, or a kid says more, when their expressive language score is a lot higher than their receptive language score, or when it, even in looking at daily routines, you think this kid is really talking, but there's very little evidence that she's following directions, that she's understanding conversation, that she's really engaged and really with you, you know, don't ignore that. That's a huge diagnostic marker for you. And so for those kids, you need to put the pictures away during therapy. You don't need to use those pictures at all. You've got to bring it back to real life. Or use the pictures to let you know, okay, she's got some kind of label for this or on some level, you know, she knows the picture. I've got to teach her what it really means in real life. And so you've got to really bring all of that into play so that she can match those labels or how she echoes that word expressively so that she really understands it receptively. Does that make sense? Do you know what I'm trying to say there? I do, yeah. I think it makes sense. And so and for I know those... anybody who's done this for more than about six months should be able to come up with a name or two that they can say, oh, that's just like so-and-so. Yeah. And so and you cannot... You have spectrumy tendencies. Let's just say yeah. that up front. And even if they love pictures, and so you're thinking, great, she has 300 nails. I'm going to use pictures to teach her verbs. Please don't do that. Please, I beg of you, put the super-duper cards down. <laughs> you need to play, play, play with her and use um, use those words and use those those, you can already use her little core vocabulary words she can say, but make sure she's applying that and understanding those words in her daily routines and in her play situations. And that happens a lot with kids that are on the spectrum. They might have a lot of words they can label, but are they really able to follow through with those, uh, follow directions with those words and understand and you know is there much evidence there that they can actually use those words beyond labeling a lot of times no and so that should be your number one therapy goal is to get them to use those words in different contexts mainly that receptively they understand those words with real objects not with just the pictures so with those kinds of kids you totally want to stay away from flashcards if you're using those kinds of cards at all or using that as a teaching activity I try to always relate it to a real-life game so that if you're using those super-duper verb cards to teach verbs, don't just label the pictures. If it shows a picture of a kid running, get up and run with the kid. You know, pantomime the action. So, and that can be a lot of fun if you get a kid that developmentally really is with you and they understand what you're doing. Um, that can be a lot of fun 
in a way to kind of bridge that you know, use the preferences they like, but move on to teach it. I hardly ever use pictures like you were saying, Kate, when we were talking about, you know, with puzzles that would be it, or if a kid really, really loves pictures. But I, I just, I teach by doing, and I mostly <laughs> use toys and objects and would much rather um, have that as my main therapy material rather than using pictures. I hardly ever do that with a kid at all, and a lot of speech therapists are the opposite. They'll use a lot of pictures and hardly ever play, and that may be fine for children who are four and five and six, but not for our babies and our toddlers. You really, really, really need to keep it developmentally appropriate, and for toddlers that means real life, real toys, real objects, real activities for you to do, not just reading about it, not just looking at a set of cards. You know, you need to really figure out a way to do it. Well, and so and, when and some Laura, let, let me go on record here. I asked about my education. The one thing I really did learn in grad school was that it is totally appropriate, even for very typically developing, even for, dare I say, smart children, to do better by actually engaging in activities themselves and not being taught in a traditional way of you sit, I'm going to spew this information and you're going to absorb it. I mean, it is normal for all children to really want to experience things hands-on, and that's the way that kids, all children learn better. So, um, you know, there shouldn't be anybody in early intervention who doesn't get that, regardless of their discipline. Right. Um, And and I I can see why, as you said a number of times, why therapists think, well, hey, this is a pretty cool thing. All I have to do is take in these cool little... It's efficient. Yeah. It's easy. You don't have to load up your car with a bunch of junk. You don't break your back getting them in the house. You know, I get it. And, it, it you know, if you happen to get a kid who who likes that, you may get lots of word attempts or whatever. Right. But is it appropriate ever? No. Really? It isn't? Right. So. Right. <laughs> Right, right. Mm, yeah. Yeah, and it's for surprising how common it is that it's really, really common to approach, especially mm-hmm. with speech pathologists. And again, I wanted to kind of say at the beginning, I get it. It's because it's rooted in your education, and nobody's ever taken the time to put a hand on each of your shoulders and look at you straight in the face and say, "Stop using the flashcards." You know, that would be what I would want to do to. Everybody that's overly dependent on that, you know, nobody's ever, they haven't had that aha moment where they realize, oh, my gosh, I should be using real-life stuff. You know, and, again, I doubt that's going to be new information for anybody who's taken the time to listen to the show unless they're kind of new uh, with that. Or, you know, they could maybe maybe have had a supervisor who, um, you know, during that clinical fellowship year, even if they were working in early intervention, who didn't really get it and wasn't play-based like they should have been. So, I mean, there's certainly, I mean, we see it all the time. And I hear about it all the time. So that may not be, again, the core audience that we're talking to right now. But hopefully, you know, as as great therapists train new therapists and, you know, the information is readily available, that word will get out and more and more therapists will use a more play-based approach. And a lot of times parents really um, – how many times do you hear this, Kate? Because you're the DI – and the parent will say, well, the speech pathologist is, is supposed to do that because that's just what speech therapists do. I mean, parents can so fall into that trap, too, of thinking, you know, oh, we're supposed to play with them except for when the speech therapist comes because then she's going to belt them in the high chair and make them look at flashcards the whole time. And then she's doing speech therapy. Right. I do hear it a lot. <laughs> and I also, normally it goes hand-in-hand hand with... Uh, Oh, he likes it when you come. He's he, you know, gets excited when he knows you're coming. He plays with you. He's excited. Right. He doesn't really love speech. And I say, right. well, what is she doing? And nor, nine times out of ten, it's either well, they do flashcards, or they do puzzles, books and puzzles. Yeah. 
those yeah. you know, all again, picture, picture, picture. And right. you know, obviously those are the kids who do not love pictures. Right. And the vast majority of our kids don't. Yes, occasionally right. we get those kids who are really highly visual and they like them, but most of them you get out a book. You know, we like to joke that the only time we really use a book <laughs> is to make a ramp for a car out of it. I mean, that's right, about exactly. the truth. If yeah. I every time every once in a while I get a kid who kind of shows initial interest in a book, but nine times out of ten, then when they realize I'm going to have some authority over that book, I'm going to control turning the pages or try and get them to focus on something in the book, then they're done. A lot right. of times I take a book and and close it real fast in their face, you know, kind of make it uh-huh. a social. You told me that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to blow me off? Okay, look what I can do with my book. And they like that, you know. That's pretty. Yeah. And again, these are kids who socially they are not typical. They don't, but they do respond to that. To me, that's about the best thing you can do with a book in a therapy session: is make a fan of it and and close it in their face so that they feel it. That'll get their. My attention. favorite thing is making a tunnel. I use yeah. books for tunnels more often than anything else. Yeah, tunnels and ramps, like you said, mm-hmm. those are pretty fun things for books, but. You know, all joking aside, children do eventually have to learn how to do books because that is how we test their receptive language. But again, developmentally, naming a variety of pictures is not on the developmental test until a kid is nearing three. So that tells you how you need to use that information is if you have a kid that's functioning at the nine to 12 month level developmentally, you do not need to use a lot of pictures and Flashcards is your primary treatment modality because they are so far away from when that would be developmentally appropriate. And I think therapists and parents get that analogy. They understand mm-hmm. it when you phrase it like that, and right. that makes a lot more sense to them. And, yes, we do want all children to be exposed to books, and, yes, we understand the inherent value of that, blah, 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 blah. But you've got to meet a kid where he is, and do what will hook him and keep him there with you and what is developmentally appropriate for him and fun so that he'll participate. So if he hates books, don't use books. Let me throw in a couple little ideas for helping children move toward that. How I really use books for children who, again, are talking already, who have a pretty good, we're building a lot of words, their vocabulary's getting on up there. We might have already... You know, they may already be working even on phrases before I'll start to say, okay, let's kind of look at this. You know, what else are we doing cognitively? What else is he liking to do with you, Mom? Is she doing books at all? And if I have a kid who really still isn't into that with Mom, ways to kind of hook their attention would be some matching with a book. And I show a great clip of this in my conference where I had a little girl who hated books because she... Um, I think they had just been crammed down her throat so much that every time she saw one, she just wanted to run away because it was not fun or meaningful for her for a long time. So to get her to like books, and again, this is as she's knocking on her third birthday, you know, as she's old, um, I introduced some uh, board books. And and again, I use a lot of uh, books with photographs, real-life books, don't you too, Kate, rather than... Only really, yeah. that's only one they have anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so you can uh, with those really realistic photograph books. If you look around in your toys, you can usually find objects that are pretty close to the picture, especially if they're current books. And so you can do some matching. And I've had really good luck with having kids. You know, here's a dog. Let's find a dog. And I try to get one of my toys that's really similar and do some do some matching that way and that's fun for a lot of kids i don't know if that's an activity you routinely do i think you have a picture that you match real objects to or a puzzle i'm sorry that you do puzzle, some real object yeah. matching with. my yeah. poor old puzzle that i can't seem to find a duplicate of that's almost worn although you know i would feel a little guilty like maybe that's a disadvantage but the kids who get it still get it you know yeah. even though the pictures are worn Sometimes when the kids don't get it, I think, well, maybe he just can't see it that well. Maybe he can't see that it's a dog. But then the next kid who gets it can do it immediately. And the parents get it. So, yeah, I do it more with puzzles. But they are photographed pictures on the puzzle. That's why it's one of the reasons I love that puzzle. 
and yeah, kids and who get it can do it, and kids who don't, mm, they don't have. A they don't get it. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's they're not there yet developmentally. So that's a way that you can help that be more relevant. What are some other ways that we can make pictures fun? You can copy your pictures of your flashcards and hide them either in your old Tupperware blocks that Kate and I swear by. You can get those off eBay. They're blocks that open and close or Easter eggs. And you can hide those all around the room and then open the Easter egg or open the block to find the picture. You can just hide your flashcards around the room and have a bucket or like at the Easter basket, you know, kind of game where you're going and you're finding those pictures. That makes it a lot more fun. And, again, I'm, this is kind of last resort stuff. I'm not saying this should be your primary therapy activity. I'm saying if you're going to use flashcards and if you were going to, you know, tie my hand behind my back and make me give you ways to make this more fun, for God's sake, please don't belt them at the, in the high chair at the table and make can do but if you're going to do pictures please do something different (laughs) than just sitting there and naming them over and over and over so these would be some things that you could do to make it more fun any kind of little bucket or like a mailbox or anything with a slot makes that a lot more fun if you're putting the picture inside something that's another way to again um, make it more enticing to get the kid to participate with you. I think I mentioned this last week on the show that I did this with a memory game. I have a bucket that's supposed to be for for Valentine's Day that a kid's the opening is just perfect for a kid to kind of stick their hand in and then pull it out where it almost gets stuck every time. Kids think that is hysterical. And if I'm going to use a picture game or for some reason think that we should do that. I almost always have something like that, that there's another little fun twist um, that we're going to do with that, with those pictures to make it, again, more appropriate for a toddler. With older kids, other things that I've done, I've taped pictures to the wall and let them throw maybe a Nerf ball or something and whatever picture our ball hits is the picture that we name and again if you're doing this because you're working with an older kid with speech sounds that's a fun way to do it or if you're whatever reason you've decided that you absolutely have to use a picture that would be a fun way to do it another thing i've done with older kids is have them um take the pictures to the wall and they jump up and try to grab the picture off the wall that I've taped on the wall. That's fun. I did that with my own boys when they were doing sight words and that was a way to get them to practice that. Uh, So I wanted to mention that as well. There are other fun games or twists on using uh, pictures and flashcards in Teach Me to Talk the Therapy Manual. And so I wanted to mention that, too. If you already have that book, you can look that up yourself. It's in the expressive language chapter. And over and over and over in the book, I say, and I'm going to end the show with this, pictures should not be your primary mode of teaching for toddlers. It really should be with toys and with real-life objects, and you should save your pictures for assessment or for, again, if you don't have any other way to work on that goal or if a kid is just a diehard picture kid. But even then, you want to really question that and make sure that those skills are carrying over to real life because if you have a kid that's just labeling, that's a diagnostic marker. (laughs) That usually means... There's trouble with receptive language. (laughs) So you want to be sure that you're looking at that as well. So hopefully, I think I've checked off everything on my outline that I wanted to mention about pictures. Um, And back to our original question, I like the super-duper pictures better than I do Mayor Johnson. Kate, do you have an answer on that? You don't care for either super-duper or Mayor Johnson, I don't think I'll be investing in either one of those anytime (laughs) soon. Nope. No, I do confess to having some super-duper picture sets, but again, they're way back in the back of the shelf because I hardly ever use them. um, Here's the other thing, Laura, really, that I have found is that if you are truly a play-based therapist, as I like to think I am, and I feel pretty confident saying, yes, that's what I am, I am mm-hmm. nothing if not fun. Now, I have my faults as a therapist, but I do try and keep it fun. Right. And once a kid knows that, 
Mm, you're probably not going to have too much luck with pictures, which is okay by me because yeah. I think that's appropriate and I think it's much more effective. So, right. you know, I don't ever start there. Mm-mm. And the other thing is, like you've talked about, it does seem like so many of the kids who really, really are interested in the pictures have those spectrum tendencies. Mm-hmm. And so often, yeah, they're really good at imitating the word for the label, but receptively, oh, boy, and socially, right. oh, boy, right. big issues. And so That's why I, I wanted think, to mention that. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's a big marker, and a lot of therapists and parents, a lot of parents, most parents, may not understand that, and a lot of therapists don't get it either. Right. And so I just really steer clear of it and think, no, that's not going to be my brand of therapy ever. So and right. I think it's appropriate for it not to be. So mm-mm, I'm not invested. I invest in a lot of toys, probably mm-hmm. unnecessarily, but I think that's something that uh, makes me a better therapist. But I will not be buying any picture cards anytime soon. Well, there you go. And if you ever get a hankering, you can just use mine that I bought when I didn't know any better. They're all 20 (laughs) years old now. You can have them. (laughs) Thanks, but I'll borrow some toys. How about that? (laughs) There you go. Speaking of that, we both got the Fisher-Price Vintage record player this week, and neither one of us knew that the other one was ordering it. Did you, and you said you got the old version, too, right? I got 1971. the How much did you yeah. have to pay? That's what I wanted. $19.99 plus $10 shipping. But I did the buy it now because I can't stand that bidding stuff. And I was up in the middle of the night, and I just happened to think about eBay, and I just happened to remember what you said last week on the show, so I went on, you know, did a buy it now. I was on and off at about two minutes, and it was done. Did you do a oh, whole bid thing? Pretty, I did the bid thing. And it cost me thirty dollars, but the shipping was free, so I guess we were, we were tied. But I had to go through the stress of, am I going to get it? Am I going to get it? Because I oh, got you know I don't on, do that anymore. I got I outbid on one, and I didn't wasn't savvy enough to know how to up my bid or whatever. So then yeah. Laura helped me on the next one, and I put it at thirty dollars, and that ended up being the winning bid. And so we both paid essentially thirty dollars, and I don't use it because I just got it. Friday, so I'm quite I got. I must say, I've had fun using it at home. It's a cool toy. (laughs) Me too. I was going to say, you haven't played it yet because I got mine yesterday, and Macy and I tried out all the records to be sure they all would play, and I am remembering that some, I don't think it was mine, but I think my Steve, I think that was a toy that my younger brother had. Uh, I remember it, too, and I don't know if I had it either, but it is one of those quintessential old Fisher-Price things that if you didn't have it, your your friend had it. And it does seem like it would be a big hit. I'm really anxious to try it with uh, work kids and see if they think it's as cool as I do. Well, Well, I've already had a good time with it, too, and there is some bit of nostalgia there. But I can totally see how it would really hook a kid's attention because you do have the wind-up, and it, mm-hmm. it, the songs are slower than we play like. them now, which I love because I could actually sing the words. And the, Macy had never heard the song. You know, she's 16. She had never heard the song. How much is, okay, what is the song about the doggie that's on there? Oh, the, my little dog. Oh, where, oh, where has my little oh, dog Oh, you might gone? have different. I, have the, I got the 1971 version. What year is yours? I thought it was 71, but it has that little dog song. How many records did you get? Five. I think I have five too. That's weird that we would have different songs. Well, we'll have maybe, to talk about this after the yeah, show. Yeah, maybe I'm they sure. uh, the sellers got them from a different set or something. You know maybe what I mean? Set. Yeah, so. Maybe so. Yeah, maybe so. Anyway, I, it's I cool, and hopefully and it'll be a funny. big hit because we blew thirty bucks to find out. <laughs> I know. We could have probably shared, but oh well. We always have good intentions on that. That never quite works out anyway, so I'm glad we each got our own. I'm glad that therapist uh, has that with that little girl, so you could uh, pass that tip on to me. Okay. All right. That's all for this week. Thanks. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye.